Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to The Future of Media Explained with me, Press Gazette Associate Editor, William Turville. I'm joined in the studio this week by Charlotte Tobit, Press Gazette's UK Editor. And we are going to be focusing on keeping the digital media dream alive. Hello, Charlotte. Hi, Will. Congratulations on your first time hosting. Yeah, let's call it a promotion, shall we? And just see if it sticks. (laughs) Sure. So, Charlotte, great to speak to you in the virtual studio. Sad to not be in the real studio with you today. As I said in my intro, this week we are speaking about keeping the digital media dream alive. Now, you wrote that headline, so I wondered (laughs) if you could briefly explain what you mean by that and who you are speaking to this week. I would love to. So the reason I phrased it that way was at the moment, there are all sorts of think pieces being written about the closure of BuzzFeed News and Vice declaring bankruptcy and basically how it kind of feels like an end to that era of digital media where publishers kind of set themselves up to be very reliant on social media traffic and advertising based revenues and kind of that was it and now they're realizing that maybe that wasn't so great as a full model and mm. so and we've we've written some of those think pieces ourselves <laughs> we? I suppose we should declare that or maybe not think pieces but we've had some interesting coverage around this area haven't we and it is quite an interesting story for us isn't it where, where were you when uh, when Vice and BuzzFeed were, were rising up through the digital media ranks? Oh, that's a good question. Um, were you uh, were you a consumer? Were you working as a journalist? I, I was I was at Press Gazette for, for some of it. And then I was in other places. And the whole time I thought, oh, I'm so jealous. I want to work there. When would and, you say roughly that began? I can't think. Ooh. Oh, no. Well, Vice is actually older than we mm. in the UK generally think, isn't it? But if you think of when it was really culturally relevant in the UK... I think maybe I was at university. I'm sure mm. I remember looking at Vice stuff when I was at uni. Yeah, I was a journalist probably when they rose. I mean, I recently wrote that thing on on the rise of BuzzFeed in the UK, and that was definitely 2013 to 2015 when it was big, and Vice was probably around the same time. But anyway, I interrupted you, and we've gone slightly <laughs> off topic. You've spoken this week to a company called, or someone at a company called Barstool Sports. Is that correct? That's correct, and we've got their CEO... Erica Nardini, who joined in 2016, and so she's been around seven years. Side note, I love the story, uh, which I read beforehand, I think she alludes to it, maybe, of how much she wanted to work there before she joined. She like was 
chasing the founder who you may have heard of, Dave Portnoy. He's quite a mm. well-known, controversial figure. But anyway, she was chasing him uh, or people that knew him for a coffee. And she was so desperate because she knew that they needed a their first CEO. And she just thought, well, they'll just get a man who already works in sports, who has an MBA. But um, according to her, by the time she finally spoke to him, they'd met about 70 of that type of person and weren't really getting anywhere. And then Mm. she was just the perfect fit. So um, her background is uh, previous roles such as Chief Marketing Officer at AOL and President and Chief Revenue Officer at the now defunct app Backstage, which is spelled B-K-S-T-G. And it was like a, mm. a music app where fans could connect with the artists more easily. But mm. during her earlier career, she like got into online advertising when people said there was no point yet and things like that. So I found it very interesting. Mm. And so she's the CEO. What exactly is Barstool Sports? As you know, I identify myself as the jock of the Press Gazette team. <laughs> But I haven't really come. I, I know the name, but I haven't. I, I'm not a regular reader, I must admit. So what is it that, that draws people to Barstool Sports? What kind of content does it have? Great question. So uh, it's definitely bigger in the US than the UK. There are a few things Erica referenced in our interview that they might want to expand further into quote unquote rest of world. But basically, they're a digital media company based in New York and they publish sports and pop culture content as everyone does, they've got their own website and are on all the big social media platforms. They've also got several really big podcasts. So for example, there's one called Pardon My Take, which is a top 10 podcast in the US. They've sort of got big ones for a few different sports. So for example, there's one called Spitting Chicklets, which is an NHL podcast. That's hockey, if you don't know. Another one called Four Play Golf. And then they've got sort of different personality driven ones for example Dave Portnoy has one bite pizza reviews and so there's just lots of um almost creator driven rather than journalism driven but I I think there's Mm. some interesting lessons definitely I I found some really interesting things out of Erica's interviews so um hopefully publishers can learn a few things about what they're doing on these different platforms Mm. sounds very laddie to me but I'm looking forward to listening to your interview and finding out more. How did you begin your conversation with Erica? So Erica just started by telling me more about what Basel does for anyone like yourself who isn't so aware of them. So that's a natural place to start. Erica, thanks so much for joining us. Would you mind just telling us about Basel Sports and what it is just for anyone maybe in the UK who doesn't know? Sure. Barstool Sports started as a blog in 2004, created by a gentleman named Dave Portnoy in Boston. And what it started out as was stuff you would talk to another guy at a bar about. Could be sports, could be what was happening in town, would be your personal life. What Barstool really started as, it started as a newspaper And it started really conversational, which is average guys talking about things that they were doing. They were watching sports. They were betting on sports. They were talking about dating life and girls. They were talking about the sports media in Boston. And what was very unique about it was the way that it was written. It was very conversational. And the brand slowly grew. It became a blog. I joined in 2016. So the company started in 2004. I joined in 2016. And really since then, We've 
turn this thing into a rocket ship where it's a multimedia company and arguably one of the most influential lifestyle brands in the U.S. We make podcasts, we do video, we have 90 shows, we have all of the top sports and entertainment podcasts in the world. And it's really a big multimedia company at this point. Can you give us an idea in terms of revenue and any other factors of the scale of it? Sure. So Barstool has grown from, I don't know, about $2 million in revenue to over $250 million in revenue. So we've grown really substantially over the last seven years. We have 215 million social followers. We're the biggest and fastest growing brand on TikTok. Uh, we have the number one sports podcast, which is called Pardon My Take. We have the number one hockey podcast, which is called Spit and Chicklets. We have the number one golf podcast, which is called Foreplay. We have a lot of top entertainment brands and we're doing our revenue mix is very diverse. So we have a very healthy and strong advertising business. We probably sell more T-shirts than anyone in the U.S. off the Internet. So we have a large commerce business. Uh, we have a licensing business. We have the top three flavored vodka in the world, which is called Pink Whitney. And we license our brand and have strategic partnerships in a variety of packaged goods spaces. And then we do pay-per-views and live events. I knew it was so diverse. That's even more diverse than I realized. I didn't know about the vodka. <laughs> yes, the vodka is big. So we launched the vodka maybe four years ago, three, four years ago. It started out as an ad read. So it was an ad read and spit and chiclets. And one of the hosts is a gentleman named Ryan Whitney, who was a former NHL player. And he was doing an ad read and said, you know how I like my vodka? I like it with a little lemonade, a little strawberry lemonade. And what we created was a pink lemonade flavored vodka that has taken over the U.S. and Canada. And we're obviously hopeful to expand it to rest of world. But that's been a fun project that really happened quite opportunistically. Yeah, that's a really fun. So I very much want to move on to the social media side of things. But first, since that's another thing you mentioned on the commerce side of things, you know, it's a sort of a largely content brand. How do you sort of build a content brand that people care so much about that they would buy all this merch? Yeah, that's really the trick of it, right? If people don't care about your content brand, your content brand is probably not going to exist very long. And certainly it's not going to exist in any format that people pay for. Media businesses can kind of mask their success for a while through advertising. But I've really always found that the consumer business and the commerce business is most interesting because it's the most direct indication of engagement. Before I worked at Barstool Sports, I would buy Barstool Sports t-shirts because I thought they were funny. I liked what they said on them. And it was a sense of belonging to a brand that I believed in and that I liked. And that's what's exciting about the commerce business is it's just an extension of how you feel about the brand. And you can build a really big business that way. When you think about choosing a pair of sneakers, if you choose Nike, it's because the Nike brand talks to you. It makes a statement about you. The same thing is true with T-shirts with slogans on them or the vodka that you drink. Those are the businesses that we're getting into. Yeah, interesting. So who are your audience? Who are these people that the brand is speaking to so much? It's pretty broad. So we reach, I want to say, a 
third of the U.S. every day. Um, we have a phenomenal group of talent and creators who work here who make this all possible. All of the ideas come from them. All of the content comes from them. And we've really created a world here at Barstool Sports where we let creators be incredibly free. We give them a tremendous amount of tools to make commerce, to do advertising, to be successful on TikTok. But it's really all comes from the creators themselves. And those creators have different audiences. So our wheelhouse, I would say, you know, is anywhere between 15 and 49 years old, right? Older demographics, older audiences, more male audiences read our blog. Younger female audiences engage with us on TikTok. Guys in their 20s do sports betting with us. So it, it really runs the gamut. Really, I think our core is a college demographic and post-college demographic, but we speak to a lot of different people in a lot of different places at a lot of different times. Interesting. So since you've mentioned it again, I'm going to move on to TikTok. I noticed you've got an absolutely massive following on TikTok, and it's obviously one of the youngest of the social media platforms. How have you gone about building TikTok in particular? I was interested to hear you just say that it's mainly female. And why do you think that is? Well, I mean, I think the TikTok audience is young and predominantly female. So our audience tends to follow the audience of the platform that we're on, as well as obviously is influenced by the nature of the host and the nature of the show. I think TikTok's really fascinating. TikTok is a very wild platform in terms of it's very creative. It moves very quickly. There's a tremendous amount of discoverability. Virality happens what feels like seemingly often and very randomly. But I think it's easiest to grow on a platform if you are early on the platform. And we were early on TikTok. And most media companies, at least in my experience, I think if they don't see a model to make money, they will not put content on the platform. And I don't believe in that. I'm actually the opposite. If we can find audience, we will go find audience and then we'll worry about making money second. Um, so we were very early on TikTok, which enabled us to understand how TikTok worked at a really foundational level. And then we were able to scale that. That's partly how we've grown. So we are growing quickly on TikTok. We have a crazy amount of engagement on TikTok, mostly because we've made it our business to grow and have a lot of engagement. We're always studying the platform. We want to understand what works on the platform, what doesn't work on the platform. What's the right frequency? What's the right format? Um, should the camera be really close to your face or kind of close to your face? So we spend a lot of time studying that same way we do with YouTube, same way we do with Instagram, same way we do with Facebook or LinkedIn, et cetera. And that's why we've been able to be successful. And has revenue now followed or does it remain a sort of audience building platform? Yeah, revenues definitely followed. So, you know, one of the other great things about being early on a platform is you can experiment with revenue models before they have a lot of rules around revenue models. So we've been bringing advertising to TikTok for probably two years now before TikTok had an ad product. TikTok launched shops maybe two weeks ago. We were the first shop to open on TikTok. So we're trying to figure out how do we bring our whole business to TikTok, whether it's an ad business, whether it's promoting our pay-per-view business. We have an amateur boxing brand called Rough and Rowdy. We promote that on TikTok. Or it's, it's launching shops and putting our clothing and apparel or soft goods 
in a store that lives on TikTok. Wow, you really are on the front foot if that's practically brand new. We're trying. Bringing in the other social media platforms, how do they compare? Are they all YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, etc.? Are they all sort of equally useful or do you have a little ranking in your head? They are not equally useful <laughs> um, and they are not equally creative or friendly, I would say. The social platforms are funny beasts because they also change. They're dynamic. They have their own problems and opportunities. You obviously see this in the UK with Facebook and in Europe. You know, YouTube is a very long-standing, scaled video consumption platform. Everyone, in my opinion, is chasing TikTok. So YouTube is driving shorts. Shorts are a direct response to all of the engagement and the attention and the time spent that in this case, YouTube, but also applies to Facebook, all of that that they're seeing on TikTok. So in the case of YouTube, what I really like about YouTube is YouTube has a tremendous amount of tools, right? They have tools for monetization. They have tools for distribution. They have tools for going live. They have tools for advertising. So TikTok really, when I think about TikTok, TikTok thinks about itself as a platform and they think about a set of tools that they have to give to publishers, to advertisers, and to creators. Facebook is a little bit different. Facebook is far more particular in terms of what is allowed on the platform and what is allowed on the platform is always changing. So the quote unquote community guidelines or brand perception, there's an editorial side to Facebook which does not exist at YouTube, really doesn't seem to exist yet at TikTok, definitely doesn't exist at Twitter. And that's made Facebook and Instagram really interesting, but also really difficult. And it's created a lot of headaches for publishers and media companies. You know, Facebook spent a lot of time trying to woo publishers to put more and more content on Facebook. Now they've really walked away from that where they don't want publishers and they don't want publisher content. They want creator content. The same thing's kind of happening with Snapchat. Snapchat, I would put in the same bucket, spent a lot of time wooing publishers, wooing media, and then was like, oh, wait, forget it. I don't need you. You're just a middleman. Let's go straight to the creator. And then Twitter, Twitter, I think, is a little bit of a mess right now where they don't know what's going to happen. I have a lot of high hopes for Twitter. I love Twitter. I think Twitter is an incredible, incredible platform. It is also a toxic cesspool of darkness. So it'll be interesting to see what Linda Yaccarino does with the platform. Does she make it more video? Does she create better ad products? Does she drive more conversions? I don't think Twitter is going to care if you're a media brand or you're a creator. I think Facebook will definitely care. Snapchat will care. I don't think YouTube will care. And I think TikTok really right now is for creators more than anyone else, but they're inviting anyone to act and be like a creator. You mentioned within that about how several of them have changed a lot what they're doing or what their priorities are. And that is a big thing that many publishers are sort of increasingly worried about in terms of Facebook practically switching off news and things like that. And all the changes recently at BuzzFeed and Vice, there have been a lot of articles written about the struggles at digital media outlets yeah. of a certain area. How do you feel about that sort of discussion? Oh, I think it's fascinating. I think, you know, a lot of ways Europe and the UK has it just from a consumer perspective, from a privacy perspective, from a course of business perspective, I would say it's just way more aggressive than the US with the big social platforms. 
I think what's happening to media is in some ways is kind of heartbreaking. What you saw over the last, I don't know, 15 years is that media businesses, which were strong standalone businesses for the most part, who very intimately understood their distribution and maximized their distribution. So whether it was print or whether it was cable television or whether it was network television or really even the Internet, they understood it and they controlled it. What media businesses, you know, traditional media businesses really didn't understand was the Internet. And what you saw with companies like Vice and BuzzFeed was those were companies that intimately understood the Internet and understood how to generate eyeballs and attention on the Internet. But I think what happened to both groups is that, you know, they were wooed by the Facebooks and they were wooed by Verizon and Go90, where they became production houses for consumption of content on other platforms, and therefore they lost the audience. And they didn't adapt enough. They didn't morph the type of content they were making. They didn't build brands that meant something to people. Vice, in some ways, became an ad agency. They became a content production shop. They had all of these you know, more niche brands under the Vice umbrella. They got rid of those. They branded everything Vice. You know, I think there's a, there's a huge cautionary tale in what has happened both to Vice as well as to BuzzFeed. I think in some ways it's a little bit different, but there's also a huge amount of respect, which is they built, you know, in their time, really big businesses with really bright futures. And what it shows you is how hard it is to sustain a media business on the internet where you're disintermediated by big platforms. Hi, I'm Anoush, and I host the New Statesman podcast. Twice a week, we get under the skin of Westminster to help understand what's going on and what's going to happen next. We interview politicians, policymakers, and people on the front line to get you the full story behind the headlines. Plus, hear from our award-winning editorial team, including political editor Andrew Marr, to get to the bottom of what on earth is happening. Listen to the New Statesman podcast. You can subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. So obviously we've just been talking about what you've been doing on social media platforms. So how do you make sure that even though you're building these big followings on social media that you, I guess, is it about um, keeping hold of the brands and making sure that people love the brands for what they are? And then therefore, for example, if Facebook made loads of changes that they'd still find you somewhere else or is it something else? How are you going to survive? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. We'll probably fuck that up. So um, we can just this for five years from now. It's hard. You know, I worry about it all the time. There's no guarantee. There's no assurance that any brand or any creator is going to be as successful or more successful than they are today, mostly because they don't really control their own destiny. That's the reality of the situation. I think it all comes down to the product. It all comes down, in our case, to the content. It's all about the brand. It's all about the personalities who are creating that brand. It's all about the experience that we deliver to fans, whether that's in a T-shirt or that's in a podcast or that's in a two-minute video clip. I think if we stay focused on that and that alone, 
then we will be okay. Because if we keep that as our core and then we just adapt the distribution, maybe it's video, maybe it's audio, maybe it's long form, maybe it's short form, maybe it's live, we will be okay. Um, it's really predicated on a couple things, which is one, we have to understand distribution and we have to be able to adapt very quickly to hit that distribution. And two, the greatest amount of emphasis has to be around the brand and their audience. And that's really what I come to work to do every day. You mentioned at the start some of the big podcasts as well. Is that sort of a way of making sure you've got a more sort of direct, engaged audience? Because a lot of people talk about podcasting as like really building a relationship with those hosts. Yeah, I mean, I love podcasting. I think podcasting, it's like being in, a, in an intimate conversation. You know, you have somebody legitimately in your ears like they're talking to you. Again, we were very early in podcasting, so we were able to get unfair share of podcasting and of the podcasting business. I think podcasting is changing. I think the pandemic kind of killed podcasts in a way where people weren't commuting. You weren't spending hours on the train or in the subway or on the, in your car. And it really morphed everything into video. The increase in video consumption over the pandemic was just extraordinary and it's breathtaking. We still think about things the same way. You know, when we created Pardon My Take, it was a satire of sports media. It was average guys talking about sports in a really, really funny way and kind of taking the piss out of the conversation. We just do the same thing. We just do it now in video. We still do the podcast, but we also do it in video. And I think that's what's made us really successful. I think a lot of people are realizing they need video versions of their podcast now. And then related in terms of video, but also maybe related in terms of social media, looking at your pages, I think you seem to experiment with live video increasingly. It's yes, we do a lot of live video. What's, what are the sort of advantages there and, and any sort of tips you can share? I like live video. I mean, I think part of the reason fans like Barstool Sports is we're a little bit chaotic and very fallible and you never know what's going to happen inside of this company. It's one part of reality show and then one part of media company that the reality show is about. And live is the same thing. You don't know what's going to happen when something is live, which keeps you watching. That's why people love sports, right? You don't know what's going to happen. It's violent. It's climactic. It's great athleticism. There's an unknown conclusion and you're part of it. And so We've started dabbling in live sports. So we've done basketball, we've done hockey, we've done college football. Uh, we're about to do golf. And I like live because I think live is a great opportunity to tell a very long story that can play out in specific moments that's made for social media. And you can showcase, you know, in this case, we showcase sports or we showcase our own sports or, you know, it doesn't really matter what it is. But the danger of live, I think, is what makes live so exciting. And it's certainly an area that we'll get into more and more. And are the platforms making it easier to monetize that as well? The platforms are making it easier to monetize. It's incumbent on the broadcaster. So whomever owns the rights to the live is typically responsible for monetizing the live. 
but the platforms enable it. That's what's most important. They enable the go live, the broadcasting, which is really critical. You know, what you see happening in the U.S. anyways with, you know, Thursday night football and Sunday ticket, like you're starting to see big live sporting events being hosted by internet companies. I think that's going to be fairly watershed in terms of changing the broadcast experience. I think there'll be more personality. You'll start to see things where there used to be just one, you know, one Sunday night football game. Now you're going to have several streams of the same game with different commentators and different personalities. So I'm excited for us to understand that for sure. Yeah, exciting. Okay. And talk something else that's kind of fresh that lots of people are talking about right now is generative AI. And I ask because everyone in the industry I've talked to recently talks about generative AI. So I just wanted to get your take in terms of, is it something that you're thinking about in terms of your business? And if so, are you more optimistic or pessimistic in general? I think AI is crazy. You know what I mean? It's brilliant and it's a natural outcome of technology, right? Like technology is just going to keep on innovating. You can't stop progress as scary as it may be and as dangerous as it may become. We're thinking about AI more so from how do we use AI to streamline costs or streamline tasks, right? What are the things that are really manual and cumbersome for us that take a really long time and are a total pain in the ass that could be better served by AI? Um, video editing, screening for uh, sensitive words or topics, stuff like that I think we will, we will engage with pretty aggressively. In terms of, you know, thinking about are our podcasts going to be replicated by, you know, some chat GPT type of service or solution? I'm not really worried about that. I do think it's going to create a lot of pressure on what's real, which is, I think, going to be something that's very important in the future. I think that will change things, the notion of what's real and what's authentic. And we're fortunate in that we have a brand that's built on being real and authentic. So that's, you know, that puts us in a good position. I think things will become more physical. I think in some ways things will become smaller. You know, you look at what's happening around verification, where the social networks are starting to charge for verification. I think that's going to continue the notion of, of being able to understand what's real. So we're, we're watching it closely for sure, but it is annoying because it is a buzzword for sure. Yeah, definitely. I guess for a brand like yours as well, if a lot of what you do is focused on, as you say, like these real people and real personalities yeah. that people get to know, that's not something that AI can come along and replace. Correct. So I wanted to mention um, in February, Barcelona is obviously fully acquired by Penn. I wanted to ask you, what does that mean for you and the brand and sort of other things that you can now do things? Yeah, it's cool. So we were acquired in February of this year, as you mentioned, by a company called Penn Entertainment. Penn has been a great partner for us. They invested in Barstool Sports two years ago. So this is, you know, a continuation of a longstanding relationship. Penn is the largest regional casino operator in the U.S., which makes them also a very smart and significant platform for sports betting. And they have licensed our brand, the Barstool Sports brand, to be the brand of their sports book. So I think the exciting part of the future, at least in the U.S., you're more used to this in the U.K., but sports betting is fairly new. It's, you know, it's state regulated. It's having a rollout. It's certainly having a moment. What Penn was very sharp about was they understood that they would need a brand that consumers cared about and that would resonate. 
and they wanted to have organic media and authentic media to promote the book versus doing advertising. And I think that was a very smart strategy and that paid out very well with the acquisition of Barstool Sports. And then, you know, in terms of things it opens up, it opens up a whole host of things, right? We can do events at Penn Casinos. We can cross-promote the sports book or iCasino when we're talking about sports or doing sports shows. It gives us in some ways some guns, money, and steel to do things that we would not otherwise have been able to do. So we're obviously early days into the acquisition, but we're we're figuring out what that looks like and how it should look and how it should work. And, you know, we're excited about it. Great. Okay. That sounds positive. And then, so just overall for the next, say, couple of years or so, what on your mind what's um maybe worrying you or what are you most excited about well i think it's a dark time for media i think media the way i grew up with it or you grew up with it or that people enjoyed or thought about media brands is really changing in the u.s the hbo brand is going away it's going to be replaced by a brand called max so just how media is perceived, the role of media, I think is very much being upended. And I think that's tremendously exciting because it'll be really interesting to see what comes next and who comes next. What does a world full of creators look like? How do you know a source of truth when most everything is opinion? What does trust in a brand look like? You know, what about the credibility of information, kind of to your point on AI? So I'm very interested in that. I'm interested in the in where sports will go. I'm interested in women's sports, obviously. Like, can women's sports gain, you know, scale and traction? How do you think about the broadcasting of traditional sports? Who are the broadcasters? Where do those experiences live? You know, I'll give you an example of this, which is YouTube for the 2023-2024 NFL season will have Sunday ticket, which is arguably the single biggest day of American football. And most bars in the U.S. don't have smart TVs. So putting YouTube on the screen is way harder than putting NBC or ESPN or CBS um, or Fox, right? So it's going to change a lot of things in the U.S., the idea that an Internet company has the rights to a very traditional format and experience. So I'm interested in the intersection of technology, the intersection of media, what happens to media, what happens with creators, how do creators grow businesses outside of advertising. So those are the things that are simultaneously exciting me and keeping me up at night. One more question has arisen in my mind from um, you just mentioning creators a few times. Do you define a lot of the people that host your shows as creators and if yeah. so sort of um what does that mean in terms of running a media brand with like lots of creators yeah. the, you know and what's it like working with them and leading them I mean they're amazing they're brilliant and a pain in the butt like they're everything and more but they're awesome it's very inspiring to work with weird creative people I love that it's the best single best and worst part of my job but mostly the best we're kind of funny where we're one half a media company and one half a creator. And we kind of straddle that. That's partly, I think, what has made us so successful and has enabled us to be successful when other people haven't been. So that's how I think about it. Brilliant. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. Wow. Thanks, Charlotte. That was really interesting. As ever, another great episode of this podcast. I'm continually 
amazed by the brilliant content that we that we host on this podcast I must say and you're not biased at all not at all it was wonderful really wonderful (laughs) (laughs) so the title of this podcast as discussed at the beginning was keeping the digital media dream alive so I'm really interested to find out how you feel having having been involved in that conversation about Barstool's model difficulties it faces and more widely whether this is a business model that can work for publishers because as you said at the beginning we've written and read lots of think pieces on why BuzzFeed and Vice have have failed or certainly are doomed to fail at some point but here's an example of a of a company that's saying no that's not quite the case we're making this work as it is but I I just wondered if you could talk me through how you feel about that and what, what your main takeaways would be from that interview. Noteworthy that Erica kind of you know, admits to being a bit worried about that element of things on the reliance on social media. She's aware of that. But what I thought was key was what she said about how important it is to build a brand that people care about in itself. And then so if, for example, Facebook really shut down news, those people would still want that brand. You know, they wouldn't just be like, oh, whatever. They'd they'd seek it out because they care about the brand, not the distribution channel. And um, to me, what makes that clear that it does appear to be working is the success of the merchandise website and the commerce side of the business because people are buying that many Barcel sports branded things. And she's saying that's because they actually care about the brand. Then, you know, that suggests more longevity. And, and it was interesting that she thought that some of the digital media publishers that were now failing, they didn't get people to care enough about their actual brand. And so I think that's probably key to add to that. The merch website is obviously one part of a diversified revenue stream. And there were several other elements that she mentioned within their diversified revenue. So I think it's key as well that they really do have several strong streams aside from advertising. Yeah, that does seem important, doesn't it? Anyway, it was really interesting to find out about a brand that is obviously very large listening to the numbers and, and taking a, a brief look at it while I was listening to your interview. So yeah, thank you very much for that. And there'll be an interesting company to follow and may, maybe one that, that's worth highlighting more often as we continue to talk about what, what went wrong at BuzzFeed and what went wrong at Vice and why free, fun, online media can't work anymore. Exactly. And just to flag why, especially it may be worth keeping an eye on them and, and What's interesting is how those companies, their valuations have obviously been going down and down for a few years and struggled to get the investment that they once did. For Barcelona Sports, it kind of seems to be the opposite. So Penn Entertainment, which owns like casinos and racetracks and things in North America and different online sports betting brands, Penn first bought a 36% stake in Barcelona Sports in 2020 for $163 million. Then in February this year, they've They've now bought the whole thing for $388 million. So they obviously thought it was a really good investment. And it's going to be interesting to see what that influx of money lets them do next. Brilliant. Well, looking forward to reading and listening to your coverage in the future, Charlotte. You've been listening to The Future of Media Explained with me, William Turbell, Press Gazette's Associate Editor and Press Gazette's UK Editor, Charlotte Tobit, expertly produced by Misha Frankel-Duval. If you enjoyed this podcast and you want to learn more about the future of media and the future of digital media, you should visit pressgazette.co.uk.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.